Future Fossils, Michael Garfield, here with Mark Henson, the living legend, the visionary artist. I've known Mark for a few years now of my short life, and uh, I have always considered him as someone to look up to, someone whose body of work speaks for itself. Indeed, his, his erotic landscape stuff is just totally compelling and evocative, uh, especially. But uh, also, the man has led such a, a, a colored and storied life. And it's a delight that here at MAPS Psychedelic Science 2017, I'm uh, back with you and get to uh, pick your brain about the past and the future and all those good things. Well, I hope I don't disappoint after that buildup. So, <laughs> so ask me some questions and we'll see what comes out here and um, whatever drips of enlightenment I can leave laying around, that will be good. All right. So, you know, this whole show is about getting people situated in time. It's about getting people oriented with respect to our ancestors and our children and their unborn children and, you know, just like on and on down the way. And getting people to expand their sense of now to include the now moment that was experienced by those that came before us and, and that will be by those that come after. So how do you, I mean, I know that thinking about these vast time spans and you know cosmic purposes and relationships is something that's infuses your work and I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on you know how that inspires you or you know what you've contemplated over the years well I always have been interested in history and the, the story of the, the journey of humanity through time and of course, as an artist, I've spent a lot of time in various art museums and looking at the work of master artists from past ages. And one of the things I discovered is the beauty of being able to see their work in the, in the, in the flesh, as it were, is that it is a form of time travel because these, these artists have left their impressions in a static form that if they did a good job, their pieces have survived, or if people revered them, they took care of them, and the pieces have survived. And now in the museums of the world, we can go there and step right into their world, literally almost, by looking at their pieces. Not only if the world as they had depicted in their pictures, we can understand how people lived and, and what they wore and what the world looked like for them. But in the emotions depicted in the pictures, you can tell how, get an intuitive sense of how people were feeling and what their culture was like back then. And as an artist, when I look in the pictures deeply, I can understand the techniques that were used, which also gives me another window into the mind of the creator there. What did they do? How did they got their thought? What process did they go through to render it as a painting? And of course, the, the means and methods and styles have changed and mutated over the centuries. So part of the time travel for me in a museum is going in there and looking real close if the guards will allow and seeing exactly how the artist created what, what the piece is. I was in Austria a couple years ago and in the museum there in Austria they have a big collection of paintings by Peter Bruegel that depict life in about 1350 
and they're so vividly created and vividly expressed that it's exactly like stepping back in time and every little detail of their lives is depicted in these paintings from people baking bread to kid games little kids play and it's all so lively and beautifully done that you just, you just it's like a movie you just step right in and there you are experiencing life hundreds of years ago so in my own work I want to leave some kind of cultural identifiers or evidence of what life was like for us in these days. And I do try to create my pictures in a quality way using good materials and I take my time making them so they'll last in the hopes that they're treasured enough when I'm not here that people will be able to still experience the magic that I imbue them with both in my themes and depictions of our culture. And the idea being that, that the pictures themselves are time travelers. They get to live on when I'm gone and share their, the magic that is in them will continue to emanate and great ripples in, in culture of goodness is my intention. Get, get people thinking and stimulate their minds as well as their hearts. So it's, a, it's kind of a, a pro, my, my overall life project here is to create impressions of what life was like in these days, what we were thinking about, how we lived, and what, what our consciousness was like, so that in the future people will have an under, a better understanding because when you look at our history books and when you look at our television shows and stuff, we see a century here or so of war and violence and hatred and all kinds of nasty mistreatment of humanity and I, I want to leave some evidence that there were enlightened beings here at the same time that knew how to appreciate nature and enjoy their lives and, and enjoy each other. So that's that's one of my main impetuses is well what, what can I leave behind that will provide evidence. Dang, you know I remember when we were boothed with one another at the MAPS conference in 2010, the first one that they did, you know, officially in this vein, I was painting out on the outside the booth, and you came up to me and you said, so how do those paint pens hold up under years of sunlight exposure? Right, you know, right, like, right, you right. Know, oh, so, so, hey, kid, like, uh, are you actually thinking about the long term with this work or not, you know? And... And you know, at the time, I wasn't I wasn't even varnishing my stuff afterwards. So that's you know that's cool. Like your influence in my life has always been, I think, to trend towards that kind of long-term thinking. Well, a lot of artists they don't really they concern about materials isn't a big deal to them. They're the immediacy of the moment and the immediacy of the, the creative act is what's important to them and not the actual result. And to me, they're all kind of equally important. And I, it's kind of, my pictures take me a long time to paint. And I figure if I'm gonna spend the time, I might as well make them stick around. Right, it, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I can appreciate the Tibetan monks who will spend a month with their sand paintings and create a beautiful mandala. You know, 10 guys working for a month make a beautiful thing and then it's around for a few days and then they, they blow it away. I can appreciate the, the, the intellectual concept of that. 
as a work, no work of art is permanent, and ultimately they're all going to become dust. And so the monks just don't mind about the time. <laughs> but for myself, I would, I would, if I'm going to spend the time, I would rather have my work last a while. Now you never know, though fires can destroy things. That's happened to me in a couple of instances, or the vicissitudes of time. And you, you know, my work might end up at the Goodwill. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always feel so bad for those people. I'm like, your work endures. But you live on in like anonymity and like neglect and so undignified. But so like, well, it doesn't really matter for myself if, if I'm known or famous or anything because I'll be gone. And, yeah. And so it doesn't. It doesn't. It, that's kind of immaterial, really. But hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's less about the author and more about the effect of the work on people. You know, I feel like uh, I got to see the Uffizi collection. You know, and I'm looking right. at this gorgeous, this was in Savannah, Georgia a few years ago, and it was there over Easter weekend. It just happened to be that I was like in, in this place and the, the, this extraordinary body of Renaissance-era work was in this place. And I'm looking at this tapestry that was created by like a dozen people working together. And I don't know who any of those people are, but just the, just knowing just that sense that's still alive in the work of them, like all kind of huddled over this this one device, and, you know, putting it all putting it all together, this you know, forming the sort of you know, like a choir of hands. It was just it's so extraordinary that I could still feel these people anonymously alive through that work. You know, it's kind of interesting. Medieval tapestries were kind of like the the digital printing of the day. In the, in the sense that a, a master artist would create a cartoon or a painting and then take it to the tapestry workshop and the master of the workshop would assign whichever artisans he thought could execute it well, give them the job and they would spend their time and bit by bit weave the thing together. And they could make copies, they could make more than one of the same design, which happened in, in some occasions. So it, even though it's still hand work, thread by thread, it was still the idea well, as we know, weaving, it was some of the earliest computers were, were devices for weaving cloth. Yeah, didn't it come punch, out of like punch the cards, Punch yeah. cards, punch cards and whatnot were, were the weaving arts. kind of gave people a start for thinking about how to organize information in, in what has become a digital sense. So, in a way, our whole digital world has ancestry back in the days of those tapestry weavers. Kind of, kind of an interesting concept. Yeah, that is. You know, it's, and it's strange in the sense that a lot of the words that we use, I'm, I'm blanking on a, a specific example, other than the word computer used to be a job description held by a human being. You know, these rooms of hundreds of women were operating these handheld, sort of like typewriter-style analog key input devices, you know, with little wheels in them. And right, right. And it's like you went to work and you were a computer for eight hours or ten hours or whatever. And I think increasingly, I wonder what you think about this whole issue with artificial intelligence and the way that they can train expert systems in a style. And they had, they, they actually did this with a couple different painters where they produced a you know, new work 
by them by training the artificial intelligence in their style and then giving it like a, a 3D paint printer. Oh, and right, it actually right. printed their like a new painting by this artist. Ha ha. Right, those you guys know? at MIT or somewhere did uh, did a, a Rembrandt. It was, yeah, okay. By, yeah, yeah, by, yeah. by, by an AI printer. I'm not sure how this quite works, but they. They ran some parameters of Rembrandt style through, through these AI programs, and they, they come out with a Rembrandt or a painting that looked a lot like a Rembrandt. And using the most up-to-date ways to reproduce it, 3D printing can imitate brush strokes and all. So done properly, it couldn't have the, the look of a Rembrandt. But it's hard that, to say. It's hard to say. Are we ever are we ever going to get to this singularity moment where we could take our you know download our consciousness into some sort of device, or is there some infinitesimally refined thing that maybe you would call it the soul or something that without that little spark of, of whatever it is, nothing really comes alive. I I don't have an answer for that. It's it's intriguing to me. I wish I was a hundred years younger so that I could live long enough to see if this is going to happen or not. I'm 65 now, so they say it's going to happen by 2030. I don't really believe that because by, by 2000 we were supposed to be flying around <laughs> in, in little personal cars and, and live in a peaceful world where all the big issues had been resolved. And that, that didn't happen, so I'm not going to hold my breath on singularity. But if it does, I would be intrigued to see how that works. I, I don't know if... I don't know if it's going to happen or not. You know, it's the, the idea of building so, a, a machine that has as much electrical connectivity as our brains, I think that's possible. I think technically we can achieve that. But whatever it is, that magic thing that gives us life, is that transferable in a digital mode or an artificially created mode? That it remains to be seen. Yeah, you know, some, some of my favorite science fiction is uh, John C. Wright's Golden Ecumen trilogy where the whole premise of the book is that we find a way to record a person's soul. Right, that, right. Yeah, right. like we you can actually, like we did figure it out. We, did, we figured out how to duplicate it. Like he's actually willing to go that far. And it's interesting that he wrote it, at, he wrote those books while he was an atheist. But he still believed that there was a soul. You know, and he still believed that, like, one day, thousands of years in the future, we'll find the means. But I guess, like, I see a real sharp difference between that potentiality and what people are doing now and, like, claiming that you're going to be able to put yourself in a computer. That's, like, so 64 kilobytes per second MP3 version <laughs> of, like, you know, that's, like, the, you know, that's like you're going to be, like, the 8-bit version of yourself, you know, like, dee 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 that's not really like the same guy. My soul is pixelated. What do I do to smooth the jaggies? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, <laughs> well, part of all of this comes from our psychological desire to be immortal. You know, yeah. They say, you know, the basis of religion as well. What happens after you die? Well, we want to know, and we want there to actually be something. And I, I'm kind of a empiricist, so I, I really don't have any answers on that one either, whether, whether you're dead and you're done, or whether you go on somewhere. But psychedelics have at least allowed me to see that consciousness does exist. It pervades the universe in some way or another, in some etheric sense, and it's there. We have it. That can't be denied. It comes from somewhere. That can't be denied. I don't have any kind of a clue where or how it works. But it is there, 
And so if we could ever unravel that mystery, I'd, I'd be really excited to find out what happens and see how that works. But maybe, maybe part of life is it's supposed to have a bit of mystery, that if we scientifically understood everything, we'd come to a static place and, and our evolution as a species would stop. I don't, I don't know. I don't think we can understand everything. I don't think it's possible because, and I might as well go out on a limb and say that this this was granted to me in a psychedelic experience also, years and years ago, but nonetheless that I felt like I had this encounter with, you know, some sort of luminous aerial entity. I'm not going to call it a UFO or whatever, but like something that was, you know, in the sky and like caught my attention and was like... Hey, I'm going to tell you about how the universe works geometrically. If you pose a question as a triangle, the resolution, you add a dimension and it's a tetrahedron. And then there's a four-dimensional resolution to the question posed by that tetrahedron in three dimensions. And it goes on forever and ever. And you just, like, every time you answer the thing by resolving the paradox, by adding a dimension, there's the opportunity to add even another dimension. And it's just bottomless because you're not actually building out it's not like there's a wall you're building in. You're just getting more and more complex uh, like inside the universe. How many mirrors are reflecting back in the mirror room? You're yeah, seeing? yeah, yeah. So that, that makes sense to me that really, if you want to talk about it, it's like we're not supposed to figure it all out. It's well, like, there's well, also totally not. We're coded into the, the fabric of it. There's also the idea that, well, our brains are little. <laughs> you know, how much brain power do we actually have? Could we, you know, the, if there was a God and God created everything, the, the, the intelligence in order required to do that is so much more voluminous than whatever fits inside our craniums that for us to try to understand it is, is hopeless. That would be like, can amoeba understand how to play chess? Well, it might be a little tough. Or maybe, maybe they can, and we just need to, like, we would have to just find a way to, like, translate. Like, there's there's certainly quite a lot of, you know, if you want to talk about it in this way, and I think it, you got to be careful doing it, but, like, talk about computation that the atoms of an amoeba are doing just in order to exist, you know, then I bet you could, like, find some way to turn, like, that's another really good one, Greg Bear's novel, Blood Music, where this guy figures out that... Each of our blood cells is like processing this DNA. It's like examining its own, editing its own DNA all the time. And if you turn that into a computer, then you can, then really like you might be able to make each individual blood cell in your body as smart as Mark Henson. And then you got a whole civilization of blood cells in there. Well, there's the theory of cellular memory that each cell remembers all of the genetic changes all the way back to the first life form in some way or another, some subtle way that there's cellular memory. Have you experiences of that? Well, perhaps. I have had experiences kind of like what you described, where if I was under the influence of a strong psychedelic, it felt like I was not intelligent enough to speak to the entities that were around me or the intelligences that were around me filling me with information. It was more like, say, here I come to the conference and I walk into a room and Dennis McKenna is speaking, I can't really ask him a very intelligent question compared to the stuff that I'm going to learn if I just sit there and shut up and listen to him talk. 
And so it's kind of like that, where some, some of my more enlightening trips, it was more like I'm kind of just in awe of the flow of information all around me and uh, the, what I should do while I'm in that position is absorb as much of it as I possibly can and, and, and just shut up and pay attention. Yeah. So that, that, there is something there to that, I think, actually. You and I both have had, sounds like a similar experience, and there may be a commonality to that for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I really, truly, there, that notion of surrendering to, I mean, this was first apparent to me. I'm sure that I've had this under the influence of uh, mushrooms, but it, it is something that I would call definitive to the experience of the more potent extracted tryptamines, you know, like specifically the like smoking DMT seems like the force of the experience is so like the fire hose of it is yeah yeah is so that there's no room left for you to compute a self in there like there's you just have to like dilate as wide as possible and allow allow it to um, have its way with you. You don't have a choice. The, yeah. the DMT is so powerful and so quick, you barely have time to even think about what you're doing before you're already in this space. And then, of course, by the time you analyze, well, where am I and what am I doing here and what should I do while I'm here, the, the, the wears off. And you come the real world or whatever, this, this outer world rematerializes and you're back here again. Whereas I found with, with LSD or mushrooms that the duration of the, the experience is long enough that while you're there, you can, I think, actually receive more information and, and consider a little bit about what it is you're getting and what you might, might want to remember before it all goes away. Mm. Yeah, the, the issue with state-specific memory is, is a, a, a puzzling one because I've definitely felt like over the years that time, the architecture of time is not, I mean, even if we were to call it a stream, you know, and that's a pretty common metaphor, a stream is full of all of these little eddies and flows and it's not, it's a braided fluid thing. It's not just a straight line, you know. Yeah, water and, likes to go all over the place. Yeah, so. Or this, other, other fluids, you yeah. <laughs> so, so this notion that, that, um, that, you know, that time is sort of like articulated according to these sequences of memory, these like associations of physical form and experience, and that, you know, we actually sort of bump around and, and like move sideways in and web into and braid with and dance around all of these other times, and that like these different states of consciousness are in effect different temporal reference references entirely it's like you're not actually in but you can go come back normal when you're no, in like normal waking consciousness and be like and then i had this experience and then i had this one and this one was crazy and it felt you know and now i'm here but like when you're in those spaces you know that that's not that's not how you're understanding time at all right right well, sometimes i have fairly vivid dreams where if the dream is strong enough, later on when I'm awake, I might confuse that reality with, with something that happened in my waking moments. Did I dream that or did that really happen to me 10 years ago? Well, what about this little experience? Was that a dream or 
I, I can't quite remember. Sometimes that happens to me, and I actually like that because if I can blur the boundaries between that world and this one, I think it's more interesting. <laughs> I don't know why, but I do. It's it's aesthetically appealing, but it's also true according to the work of people like the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab that they did these studies in random number generator influence, getting people to try and sway the die roll oh, right, one way right, or the other. Right. Oh, well, and it might work if you play the lottery. And, well, and their, their <laughs> uh, study, they found that people were actually able to influence in things in small ways and that they were able to influence the encrypted results that people took two weeks before the experiment. They were, they were able to influence the uh, outcome of events in the past. Ret so retroactive. Retroactive. So there's this notion that we're actually in this sort of rippling, that like there's moments that ripple out in both directions, and that we have, we have influence on the past, and that's really paradigm busting. Like I've been trying to make sense of that for like a decade, ever since I first found that out. One of the interesting things about a powerful psychedelic experience is your sense of time kind of goes away. You know, my most powerful LSD trips, while they maybe were 10 or 12 hours in duration, felt like about 15 minutes. Well, you know, it was, it was, I won't say time was compressed, I would say it was, it was non-existent, or it's kind of like you blink your eyes and 10 years have gone by, Rip Van Winkle kind of thing. So, but which is maybe good because you can express a lot of stuff in just a few hours, and maybe centuries, or maybe, or maybe it's like a, your, the the story about how in your last moment of life you review your whole life as you're falling off the cliff, your whole life flashes before your eyes and you remember everything and you lose that sense of time. It's like you're back reliving your whole life for however long you've lived, all in a fraction of a second. I think that's entirely possible. Totally. In fact, that kind of lines up with the T. Fairy's article on Arrowhead that she talks about her Ibogaine experience and that the, you know, I've never done Ibogaine, but I found this really compelling that, that she said that she was shown her whole life just like that, like on a sequence of slides. And this is actually something I hear a lot from Ibogaine stuff that it's like you've got your whole photo stream of your life, all these little moments, and you can go into these moments. And she said that she actually was thinking, she actually had this experience that she was looking at her phone in the photo albums of her phone, and every moment of her life was in a photo, and she could zoom into it and like enter it and relive that moment. What, 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 well, I wonder what the phone showed of the part of her life that was before the phones existed. Well, that, that, <laughs> the, the, well the funny thing was that her, uh, it turned out that she wasn't even holding the phone in her hand. It was a complete and total compelling hallucination. Well, you know, I sometimes find when I'm waking up in the morning and I'm sort of in that half awake and dreaming state that I'm working my Facebook in my mind. And if, oh, I'm, no. if I'm entirely lucid, I'm like, wait a minute, I have better things to dream about. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, you know, right after I had I really felt sort of invaded or I felt weird or uncanny about back in, in a couple years ago when I was beta testing Google Glass and not long after I obtained my Google Glass and it started wearing this computer on my face. I remember I started, that. I yeah, I started dreaming about it. That I started dreaming and in my dreams that I was wearing the Google Glass in my right, dreams. Right, right. And I was like, whoa, this is getting too real. This is like, you know, it's actually become a part of my dream body. 
you know, which is a whole different order of stuff to contend with. Right. Let's, let's keep let's keep Facebook out of our consciousness when when we're not awake. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, Facebook's like getting enough, into yeah. your you know. Yeah, I know. It's it's like, a, I didn't sign it, this. This is in the user agreement. We get a, to record your dreams. Does it burrow itself that deeply down into your consciousness that you can't get rid of it like that that jingle for aspirin you remember from the commercial you uh, saw when you were five years old? Oh, and the worst part of it is too that like I mean I'm genuinely concerned. You know, like you know earlier like a moment ago you know say you don't seem at all concerned about uh, robots taking the jobs of artists. You always you seem to be totally convinced. Well. I don't think they could entirely take the job. I think as as robotic tools, yeah, robotic helpers. I mean, I like using Photoshop and digital tools sometimes. Most of my art's fine art in traditional medium, but now and then I get a, some sort of a job or assignment where using the computer is more appropriate. And in yeah. which case, I love having the tools. Yeah. And I often will use Photoshop and other other digital tools to enhance my fine art in the sense that if I'm not quite sure about a color scheme or something on the picture, I'll take a picture of what I'm working on and then go in Photoshop and, and adjust the colors or play with whatever it is and see if I can find an improved version or, or sketch over what I've done using Photoshop to find a a better resolution or solution to what it is that's bothering me about composing the picture. So say if maybe the sky is too dark, I want to lighten it up and see yeah. if I like that better. Rather than having to paint it and see and then not like it and go back, I can experiment and yeah. and and get a better idea of what it is. And, the and it also gives you a different point of view. Photo editing is so handy, it's incredible. Well, yeah, when you're doing a, when you're doing a digital project, of course, it's nice to be able to change the colors and everything without having to actually get out the paint and physically do it, repaint the painting. So I use I use the digital stuff as a tool a, a bit in my fine art work. But will it ever supplant us as the creative thing that comes out of your brain that you just have to express? Well, maybe if, if singularity happens or artificial intelligence gets intelligent enough to become a frustrated, nervous wreck over wanting to self-express itself to the point of absolute fanaticism where it has to go out and create something new in the world. I would love to see that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> see what comes out. Well, so, okay, so, all right, you're on board for all of that, but I think the difference between that and this other thing that people worry about with respect to... Well, with robots... With, with, with respect to the future, like when you're talking about getting the jingle stuck in your head, is that everyone's excited about uh, technological telepathy, you know, the Elon Musk neural lace thing. Have you been hearing about this? They, you know, right, they right, put, right. They want to let you send, like, your thoughts to each other, which sounds super cool. Well, Star Trek, Star Trek like, explored that with the, the idea of the Borg civilization. Yeah. They, they explored that concept where we're in a hive mind or we're all... Uh, one time I read a uh, science fiction book, and I can't remember the author, but it was The Humanoid Touch. Okay. And the humanoids were intelligent robots, kind of like, like the Borg in Star Trek. They communicated telepathically with each other. They had an unlimited source of energy built within them. They were smarter than humans. And they realized that the human race was unnecessary, so systematically they go about wiping us out, which is the essence of the story. And this, is, this expresses the fear that some form of artificial intelligence, robotic intelligent creature, not only would it do us out of a job, but it would do us out of existence. So this, this is the metaphor for the fear 
of all the people who wonder if the job is going to be nixed so, by a road. But if you're assembling cars or you know screwing bolts on widgets, that isn't really intelligent work. Shouldn't our minds be on better things? Well, this is where Elon Musk says we're going to have to have some sort of minimum income. If we live in a robotic world, everybody's yeah. still going to have to have some way to, to pay for the stuff they need in their life, whether they have a job or not. Otherwise, otherwise the humans, there'll be a lot of human misery and potential for violent revolution and all sorts of other unpleasantness that it would be much easier to avoid. Yeah, I think people need a, a way to hustle in order to feel like they have purpose. You know, we would otherwise just sit around you know, electrocuting ourselves in the orgasm machine or whatever all day right. until we decide right. to commit suicide. It sounds awful, <laughs> you know, but like, I guess... That's like uh, the Zardoz world. Oh, yeah, dude. It's like, I don't... <laughs> you you, you know, live forever to the point where you're bored to death, please kill me. <laughs> yeah, I don't worry about, uh, like, robots taking us out so much as I worry, or like the this, like, gray goo scenario, they like, nanomachines just turn everything into nanomachines. But I, I think it's more like, uh, it's, it's like subtler and in a way more gross than that. It's this notion of like Facebook getting into your brain because you're using Facebook right. brain to brain messenger. Then they're, you know, you're signing the end user agreement that says that they get to record your dreams and use them for commercials. Use them and, for commercial purposes. And it's like, oh God. Well, like, part of all this fear and, and consideration is that the capitalist system, that everything is for sale or has a, is monetized in some ways, and, and the way to get ahead in life is to sell somebody something or foist off a service they don't need that you can charge them for, or, or any other way that, that, that the whole purpose of being is to acquire more money, and once you have it, then you can acquire more stuff or buy more power or more influence. The part of our human psychology that drives us that way I'm hoping we'll evolve in some way to where we get, become a more communalistic world. Do I want us to live in a Borg mind where you know what I'm thinking and I know what you're thinking? No, I don't, because it would that would clog up my thoughts. <laughs> and I don't want to necessarily hear what you're thinking unless I take the time to open my ears and listen to you, and vice versa. Yeah, am I the most exciting guy to hear rambling on in your mind for the next 300 years? Probably not. <laughs> okay, so in relation to that, I was just standing in line at the cafe across the street with uh, Alexander Ward, who's another really uh, interesting artist. He's the creative um, services guy at Divine Arts Media, and he, you know, he did the ayahuasca coloring book. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's, right, he's right. a cool guy, cool guy. And he was telling me about, you know, his time in ayahuasca ceremony, and the thing that I find so valuable in that space. And he, what he was talking about was specifically like reliving or, or having sudden access to this collective like global level memories of stuff like the first two world wars and like all of this collective pain that we have shouldered that's still floating around out there and needs to be addressed that's like in the DNA light web or whatever is going on whatever it is he didn't use those terms and I think about how in a way I feel like those experiences are actually as difficult as they are for each of us as individuals like there's no way that we can actually like tolerate or like survive undiluted access to that and like that's why it seems like there's this notion of the work in those those uh, ceremonial communities of like we're all holding up a tiny little corner of this enormous boulder you know it's like oh my god and it's like it's super noble but like 
I don't know, I feel like maybe it is the future of the human species to have to like open ourselves up to being just like dunked in everybody else's shit, you know, well, constantly. It, it already kind of happens with, with everybody blasting their stuff out on Facebook and any other, you know, everybody, you can be a musician at home and make your recordings and put them out there on SoundCloud or anywhere. You can, everybody is radiating self-expression somewhere or another. You know, it's one of our human desires. And how do we, how do we not be swamped in all the static? It's like we're running 300 radios at one time. It's hard to listen to any particular song. And so somehow we have to filter that, filter things out. There's a natural filtration process. I think it's sort of essential just to keep saying, "What do I do to do that? Mm -hmm. Get drunk." <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I, hopefully my own thoughts are usually overpower the ones I don't care to listen to from other people. If, if I don't know, it's hard to say. I spend a lot of time reading books, and that's getting into the minds of other people and, and sharing their consciousness and absorbing it into my own somehow. So I actually fill myself probably with, with junk food, so to speak, only I'd like to choose quality literature. Mm. So I'm eating caviar and a lot of caviar instead of a lot of Cheetos. <laughs> the notion of emptying so, yourself so to out to, to, again, to be taken into and becoming that thing. I was just listening to the panel discussion on 5-MeO-DMT and they were reading trip reports from that. And this person said, I emptied out entirely and the universe rushed in to fill all of the space and the sun and all the stars were inside me and all this stuff and I was like it is very you know that notion of we are what we experience you know we're nothing other than our experience and when your experience is that vicarious fantasy or that shared the shared world space of a fiction author you know I find myself in some weird way yeah like defined to the extent that I can define a person there right. as like the intersection of all of these thoughts that other people have had and also just this like uh, cosmic explosion that's going on behind all of it at the same time. I don't know. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense to me. So, so I want to shift it. Obviously, this is this, okay. we're getting silly here. I want to dip this down to brass tacks because I want I want this podcast to be, among other things, a repository for stories that need to be remembered on archive. And one of those stories that you actually brought up in years and years ago when I had you interview uh, over email for the field guide to live painters, you mentioned that you actually painted. With Jimi Hendrix. Well, not with. Okay, so what uh, what is this story? The story, because, the story is because this is like this is like, uh, you know, my, my last live live art history. I, here. I always somehow was lucky enough to be associated with the San Francisco rock and roll world just a little bit from attending shows and seeing the Grateful Dead and the other famous bands back in the day when they were fresh. And and one of the big influences in making me as an artist was the, all the lively and beautiful psychedelic posters that 
people like Rick Griffin and Stanley Mouse and Alton Kelly and Wes Wilson and some of the other great post artists were creating back in those days. I was just a little kid, but I had access to these at the local record store. It wasn't too far away. I could ride my bike over there and look at the posters and occasionally buy one or, or peel one off the window or something and take it home. And, and I, the basis of a little art collection I have that by studying those posters, I, they, I, I learned a lot about graphic arts processes. I would examine them and, well, how did these guys make this? What were they thinking of? How, you know, and, and that all inspired me to be an artist, so of course I wanted to make some posters for some rock and roll bands. And so some of my friends had their own bands, and I'm like, well, well you guys have a gig down there, you know, Joe's Coffee House Saturday, I'll, I'll make you a little flyer. And so I started doing that kind of thing and, and learning about it and having some fun doing it. And that got me, somehow I met one of the local promoters, Sacramento, where I grew up. Had a pretty good rock and roll scene when I was a kid because it was proximity to San Francisco. So the, the famous bands from the Bay Area, when they, it was Tuesday or Wednesday night, they didn't have anything to do in San Francisco. <laughs> they would come over to Sacramento and play a show. <coughs> so. Somehow I, I was introduced or met one of the promoters and became sort of a gopher for him. You know, I'd get to go to the shows, I'd get a free pass and I could do stuff, you know, helping to set up the stage or clean up the dressing room or pass posters out around to, to the store. You know, he gave me stuff to do. And not much in the way of pay, but there was a lot of glory in this. <laughs> and I could hang out backstage and such. So eventually, this was in 1971, I was out of high school already, but I still had this association with the promoter, and Jimi Hendrix came to Sacramento. He played Cal Expo, which is basically a horse race track. And so they <laughs> set up the stage down on the track in front of the grandstand, and that was, that was going to be the Jimi Hendrix venue. Outdoor show, and uh, the promoter realized at the last minute, well, we need a backdrop for this, and what am I going to do? And, one of my other gopher buddies was, was Craig Chiquiso, who, who was an awesome guitarist, who became the lead guitarist for the Jefferson Starship when the airplane broke up and they reformed as kind of a science fiction group. Well, right on. My friend wow. at age 18 or 19 was hired to be their guitar player. And he was skilled enough to do it and it became a big success later on. But, but he also was one of those guys that I was insanely jealous of because not only could he play a wicked guitar, he knew how to paint at least as well as I did. So he was one of our little gopher buddies. So the promoter said, well, you guys, can you guys come up with something? And we're like, well, you know, buy us a big piece of canvas and some paint and we'll, we'll, make, a, we'll make something for you. Right on. So it was an all-nighter. <laughs> the night before the show, we stayed up all night and painted this thing. And it was big enough and it looked nice. Kind of a big Rick Griffin-y abstract design in the form of a LSD tab um, with an American flag on one side and a <laughs> Viet Cong flag on the other side. This is oh. the height of the war. Subversion. And you maybe can find some videos or little pictures from that Sacramento show where you see little bits of it in the background. I have not been able to locate a picture where you see the thing in the entirety. Wow. So I can't offer that up for anybody. But while we were there, the show, of course, started. 
and we were done with our painting and stuff and they were short on security guards so the promoter kind of assigned us the job of being security guards and gophers so when Jimi Hendrix before his set I got a chance to hang out in the dressing room and shake the man's hand and oh. chat with him for a second and move a few amplifiers around for him <laughs> and then wow. the promoter said well the crowd's pushing on the stage a little bit the stage was about six feet high pushing on the stage a little bit you guys go out there and push everybody back five feet so we put on these little armbands and went out there and pushed everybody back five feet till we were right in front of Jimmy. And then we turned around and enjoyed the show. That's <laughs> awesome. Which was a magical moment. As you can tell by my story, I remember it quite vividly. So my little experience with him making a backdrop was pretty cool. I don't have a lot of evidence of it. <laughs> I do have a few good photos where there's headshots of Jimmy there where you see it in fuzzy in the background. Mm. But... Uh, I did find a video once, but by the YouTube took the Hendrix family had it removed for copyright. Oh, yeah. so dude, maybe I, want, I, will, maybe I uh, can write them someday and be like, hey, try, try to get that to come out. I don't know. It's, I yeah, really that's it. funny. That's like um, I was just Hollywood is so weird. Like I was Moshe Kasher was here filming his show Problematic for Comedy Central. Is that who that guy was? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I don't see. and I don't know shit from Shinola. He, he came through my booth and picked something up and I <laughs> yelled into the camera, get a shot of that. Yeah. Well, Hold he, that picture up. Well, well that's the thing is that, that when I when I asked them what was going on and I volunteered, I was like, Yeah, I'm happy to talk to you guys if you want, you know, to have a different perspective because that's what I promise to offer you. Uh, then, you know, then these clinical researchers or a random stoner guy, which is what they told me they had. And I was like, oh, good. You went and found random stoner guy just so that you can, like, characterize this entire extremely intelligent conference with, like, Except you know. Some guy so, that could barely talk. Yeah. So, but I was like, okay, so they put me in front of my artwork and they said uh, I had to sign a separate release form for them to have my artwork on television in addition to my face. Right, yeah. You know, well, that pretty, makes sense. Yeah, that pretty makes standard. sense. Yeah. But at any rate, you know, this getting back to your, you, you've seen the music world and the art world dance together in this way now for a long time now, like almost 50 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm curious to know, uh, you know, what, what your reflections are about the way that fine art through the specifically through the visionary art painting world, uh, although you know, or you know street art also has had a really large impact in terms of its combination with live music environments. And I don't know, like how does that? I mean, you you participate in that. You you're definitely out there at at shows making art in front of these audiences. <coughs> Is that? Was that strange? Is it still strange? Is it well? Are, is it hopeful? Like what? what it's are it's ho no. It's, it's well. My my first experience. I was probably sixteen or seventeen, and that that same promoter I was talking yeah. about. He managed to wangle an area near the Midway at the State Fair, in California, Cal Expo. Mm -hmm. He got them to give him an acre or two of land, 
that he built a fence around, and that was going to be kind of the hippie zone. And he, being a promoter, he had good music every night on a little stage, and for a couple of bucks you could go in. And they had a little crafts fair where the psychedelic posters were around, and people with clothing and beads and jewelry, and you know, hippie accoutrements, little knickknacks, and you know, statues of Buddha and the incense and all that kind of stuff hippies would want to buy, and some food vendors and stuff. So this was kind of like the hippie zone, and it was plywood fences all around. So the promoters like, well, let's let's get some fences painted. And so we had a little contest for a few little prizes. People could uh, paint up the fence. He had some paint and everything. So we got, you know, I'd tell all my friends and people that would come to these shows every night, get them a paintbrush and a bucket so we could decorate these fences. So this is kind of the live painting thing. And there was another little venue, I guess it was an old bowling alley or something, got turned into a concert hall. All ages. They let all the little kids come in because they weren't serving alcohol. And they had a mezzanine floor that was pretty big where the light show guys were set up. To, you know, those days you had projectors that would project lights down to the stage to decorate the set in the place. For like liquid light? Like yeah, oil yeah, shows? yeah, oil, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that kind of stuff. And. <laughs> This huge area was kind of an open dance area up there, and they had painted the walls black and had black lights all over that room. The only illumination was black lights. So right away, we would start bringing fluorescent paints and crayons and whatever we had that was fluorescent to there and hang out in that room all night listening to the music and drawing on the walls. And we weren't the only ones. Lots of other kids around town were doing that. So eventually that whole room was the black light room crazy decorated wall art. So that's kind of, for me, the precursor of what today they call live painting. And it went away for a long time because the concert world became much more corporate and became more monetized. The hippies sort of faded in the background and concerts and music production became a business. And as the business part became, you know, the money and the numbers and all that stuff became important, they dropped the light shows eventually. They didn't have those after a while. It was just a concert with maybe you know, spotlights and a lighting designer would, you know, make colors change and stuff on the band, but nothing like the liquid light shows. That stuff all kind of went away for a long time, and then we had punk and disco and a bunch of other musical movements that weren't related at all. But uh, jam band music and electronica world started evolving, and I have to, even though it's not necessarily my thing, I have to, I have to credit the rave culture with reviving the visual arts because a DJ on a stage looking at his email, or I mean playing his music <laughs> on the computer is, is not visually very exciting. And so what do you do to compensate? Well, you've got to make the rest of the room interesting. So people started building art installations and doing live painting and coming up with other newer, newfangled forms of projection art and videos and all kinds of stuff. So the audience would have something to look at while they're all stoned out enjoying the electronic music. You know, in the old days, watching the band was, a, you know, watching their fingers move on the instruments was a big part of the interest. And without that, okay, well, we'll watch the colored lights instead and, and watch a guy would come show up with an easel and a canvas or something or paint on the walls and that would be part of the show. So it, the whole idea got revived in the last 20 years by younger people who grew up in the electronic music world. And that, of course, morphed over to the live music world as well. I still go to 
live music festivals and sometimes paint live and there's usually a crew of other guys that do too and well of course we discovered this was a way to try to wangle free passes and other, form, <laughs> other forms of VIP status and, and if you need to find a girlfriend this is a great icebreaker you know because you'll get some admirers coming around and <clears throat> it's easy to talk to them when they're telling you how great you are and stuff so you know and being part of the show of course is always a lot of fun it's more yeah. fun to be on the stage doing something fun, so to speak, than just watching. At least to me, it was. You got me wondering uh, this this issue of the the gap years where there wasn't where it was more uh, stripped down, more just just about the music on stage, and wondering, you know. Part of it is what you're saying. Part of it is that the, the DJ is sort of a visually boring thing. But then part of it is that it's like the, uh, am I wrong? The, it, it seems like it might have something to do with the drugs. That like, that there's, there's a, you know, like Richard Doyle at, at Penn State University talks about if instead of calling them psychedelics, we called them ecodelics because of the way they specifically would ex raise awareness of all of the environmental factors, they, you know, aware of one's place within you know, like an ecosystem. I think there's a factor to that because the, the punk rock world, they, they like alcohol a lot. If you went to a punk show, there's often, you know, alcoholic rowdiness going on, you know, bottle throwing and fights and people yelling and screaming and passing out and barfing in the bathroom and stuff. And in the disco age, cocaine was the number one drug, which isn't really very inducive to art making. You're too jittery to really concentrate. <laughs> and, and in the same way for looking at art, you don't really want to sit around and contemplate a picture. You want to run around and drink more and dance and stuff. And so the age of disco and punk, like I said, this stuff kind of fell by the way. And, but in the, the electronica kids, you know, they, they were all into psychedelics, you know, MDMA came around and they liked mushrooms and LSD and, and the, the various things now, and DMT came, you know, an interest in psychedelics revived. And rightly so, because they are the most fascinating drugs, I think, as far as elevating consciousness goes. Yeah, so like an so, so I think we're in kind of a psychedelic revival. I think the 60s, there's a backlash. You know, the, the hippies scared the rest of the world a lot. This culture war we talk about started with the hippies because they presented an alternative form of living that the business world and the economic world and the capitalist world were scared of because it, it disavowed or devalued their model. Hippies didn't care about making money. Hippies didn't care about fashion. Hippies didn't care about keeping up with the Joneses. All the things that helped make capitalists richer, the hippies rejected. We are going to go back to the land, weave our own clothes, or run around naked and eat, eat uh, bananas, and make our own music, and, and build our own houses and stuff. And this, this is very anti-capitalistic. So the, the essence of our culture war comes, it's an economic war in a sense, and as well as a consciousness war. And the psychedelic drugs, you kind of, if you have a good psychedelic experience, you realize that the beauty of a sunset is of more importance than a pallet full of dollar bills. And, and <laughs> or hundred dollar bills even, and and so it, it's the essence of a uh, 
dichotomy in our society. Some people would want to go one way and some would go another. So the, the Haight-Ashbury, of course, fell apart. You know, all good things can't last in that way. And the hippies, there's a big diaspora. They went out and moved all over the world and planted seeds in every community of something quote-unquote hippie or psychedelic, the psychedelic society, it went out and took root all over the world. And it took 20 or 30 years to really grow to the point where now almost every country has a psychedelic culture going on in some form or another, even small, they're, they're there. Mm. You know, the, the we are everywhere slogan is really true. Well, you, you know, you're, I remember a couple of years ago talking with your partner, Monty, about how you have this painting that... Um, I, I, the, the traveler at the crossroads. He's standing there. He's looking at this wall of like ancient petroglyphs, and on one side of the wall is just total destruction. It's the it's the absolute collapse of civilization. It's the worst shit you can imagine. And then on the other side is the most beautiful, extraordinary, healed world. That and you know the, the, precisely the kind of world in which you would want to raise your kids. And she was telling me that you guys were trying to work an angle to get that painting into the White House. We were, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were. And we wanted to, we wanted to print up a, a big size, 10 foot wide print and deliver it personally. And we actually even raised a little money to do this, but we couldn't find a way to do it. And Monty's son actually works for Homeland Security, so we had him ask around oh, about wow. protocols wow. for doing such a thing. And basically we found that gifts to the White House basically go in a pile somewhere, and they're not really allowed to accept, well, maybe Trump takes these things home and keeps them and treasures them, but the other presidents usually would donate any kind of gifts like that to some charity. They auction it off and mm. the charity gets the money or something. But it would actually get make it to the White House and be hung up there or even put on a temporary display or anything like that. It seemed like it was going to be impossible to manage to get that done. Dang, how do we how do we hack the system well, so that we can I think get work we, like that in a prominent place? Probably what we got to do is make, yeah. the, make the big prints and pull up in front of the White House and <laughs> have another crew of people create some kind of distraction around the corner while we quickly, you know, <laughs> Glue this thing to the fence. <laughs> I feel like I feel like you know somebody with the nerve of Android Jones could just roll up with his truck and a huge projector and just project it onto the White House. Well, we've, we've, we've thought about those things a lot. You know, at Art Basel in Miami, we, we wanted to do projections a lot of times, and and one of the things that you know it's actually illegal to do that in a lot of places without a permit. Oh, that Some, makes sense. Somehow yeah. that's regarded. You know, if you that's graffiti. It's it's light graffiti. If you go to New York and read an office across the street from Trump, Trump Tower and project, you know, fuck Trump on Trump Tower every night, you're going to get in trouble. Oh, Jesus, dude, they're going <laughs> to, it's going to get so bad, like, the next step is obviously, you know, I, I already saw one of the use cases for augmented reality was that you could do augmented reality graffiti that's not actually on the building. Right. You know, where you'd like look through the lenses and it would be this cool art project, but then they're going to, there's going to be like, you know, the, all the data around those spaces is going to be like a sort of weird wild west of public-private mixed ownership and people are going to start hacking it and like putting their own stuff up and and it's going to be it's just going to be like meta graffiti like people are going to try and shut it down and it, it's going to be this new space that corporations are trying it's, to like lock it, down it's, on it's us. It's kind of a legal gray area in a sense because because to for vandalism of private property, there has to be actual destruction or public property. Something has to be yeah. damaged. 
and uh, Alex Schaefer, an artist in Los Angeles, he likes to paint on the streets of LA. He takes his easel out on the street corner and paints what's in front of him, literally. He's a very good artist. He's an art professor down there. But one of his pet peeves is the corporate world. So one of his side projects is he would, say, go to Citibank and draw out their logo on the sidewalk in front of Citibank so it would say shitty bank or, so, or something like that. And he was arrested several times. Well, you can't, you're vandalizing, you're, you, this is private property, you're vandalizing. He's like, no, it's public property, it's the sidewalk in front of your place. They'd call the cops and stuff, and the cops would come take him, and he went to court a couple of times and won because he's wow. using chalk, and chalk washes off. So he's not damaging, <laughs> he's not damaging public property in the legal sense. So he could do this. But if you're projecting on a, so maybe if you're projecting on a public building, you could do this, whereas if you were projecting on Trump Tower, maybe a, a lawyer for, for them could make the case that you're damaging the reputation of Trump Tower by, by putting fuck Trump on oh, there, right? Yeah, and and that, that there's a legal harm so that you would be liable for some damages. However, you know, even on a public building, it's, you know, there's, there's, I've seen all sorts of videos of people getting accosted by, uh, you know, federal agents for photographing federal buildings and that kind of right, thing, you right. know, like, anyway, I don't well, know, I guess. Maybe we could do a crowdfunding, get a, get a van and a couple of big projectors and a crew together and create a, an archive of, you know, provocative artwork that we could go in and, and design some, uh, some projections for different buildings and play with it until they, until they take us to jail. And then, and then have, have a crew of lawyers as part of this project who are going to fight it and, and make some definitions about mm. what's actually legally allowed. That's really important, it. yeah. It's, I mean, it, it, I think that's a key consideration in making sure that the people are able to retain, to actually claim our commons when a new resource is opened up like that and actually say, no, we're not going to allow this to be immediately commodified and turned into, you know, corporate domain. Could you call, could you call projecting on buildings visual pollution like somebody who could, like their sound ordinances playing loud music or drum circles or any other kind of thing, you know, in cities they have sound ordinances, and, you know, which makes sense because you want to have everybody's life be bearable yeah. and you don't want to impose, any one person impose their sonic will on everybody else. So maybe in the visual sense. Anyway, it's a gray area. It needs to be worked on and resolved somehow. It's, it's okay. only going to become more like that as projectors become more common and more powerful and, and mapped projections and all this stuff become common skills with people. They're going to want to do it. Well, you're, you're, it's like you're getting into the ad blocking terrain. Like the people that are using AI to create these these ad blocker software. Yeah, this is a new I, I thing. I use it. Yeah, the, the AI, <laughs> well, there's like new AI ad blockers that um, recognize something that's an ad even when it's, like they recognize an, an ad visually, like it's, it's computer vision. And uh, so it, it, it's not even necessarily like the ad, like the banner of the website or whatever. It might be an ad that's like in another video and, the, and you'll, it'll just be like bleeped. It'll be bleeped out so like, in the future, you'll be walking through a landscape with your glasses on, and there's ads everywhere. But your right, glasses right, are just pasting like black. Everything looks well, redacted. Right, you know? I've, I've seen like, a few videos of what enhanced reality could look like. What a horrible world! Ugh. 
Except yeah. for maybe when you want to have a party, then maybe you would program it to be just so. Maybe it would, maybe it would be more fun, like a rave but, and less like a punk show. But, you know, having advertising jammed in your face everywhere you look is, is one of the aspects of our culture that the hippies were right about. It sucks. And it, it sucks being hustled to buy crap you don't need every single day. And the, the famous street artist Banksy had some comments, which I can paraphrase, which basically say, you know, we don't ask for this. We don't, you know, we don't want this. It's jammed down our throats every single day. We have an equal right to fight back by defacing it, destroying it, removing it, painting it over or anything else, you know, putting our own art on top. We have just as much right to take public space, and we should, and, and, and take it back. So, for instance, there's an artist in, I think he's in New York, and you know, the bus stops around the cities of the world and the, the states have big advertising placards, a glass case where, you know, ads for fashion stuff get put in all the time. And while you're waiting for the bus, do you really want to look at somebody in their underwear? Well, I don't know. But, uh, so he creates keys. He somehow gets the master keys to these, and by hand he'll make a key that unlocks these cases. So for, for 20 bucks or so, you can buy a key for the city you live in. And, and create your own artwork and, you know, go around at night and open up these cases and slip your own stuff in there. That's a recommendation, <laughs> folks. <That's laughs> so I don't remember the URL of this website, but it does exist. And the guy, he makes the keys one by one in his little workshop. So. Wow. Wow. <laughs> well, right on, man. It's been cool. It's been cool to sit down with you and have this conversation. I guess before we, before we like, wrap it up, I always like asking people at the ends of these shows about your vision of the future and like what it is that you you hope happens and what it is that you want to put out there as like a way of anchoring something that people can really start to imagine and clearly visualize and get behind. You know, what kind of a, what kind of a world do you hope that this recording is uh, being listened to in in however long, however many years? I think the human race is at a crossroads. We're, because of our numbers, 7 billion are at the moment, and the way they're rapidly increasing, it's swallowing up the rest of nature and consuming all the resources. And what I would like to see is that the humans to scale back their numbers to only a couple of billion, maybe. And I know that the people that worry about eugenics and population control, a lot of conspiracy theorists think that the Rothschilds want to kill off two-thirds of humanity and stuff. That isn't necessary. All we have to do is make less humans, and in a few generations it'll be solved. So I think what we need to do is figure out a way to satisfy the human craving to reproduce and have a family with being happier with fewer of us. Somehow we have to come to a situation where we don't feel the compulsion to have big families, and that women are better educated, and that uh, everybody has a better living, because in, in agri agrarian societies, having a big family was your social insurance. So I think as we move towards a global unity, I think we do need to take care of the children and take care of the old people as a society rather than as individual family units and overcome this need to have so many of us. That way we could give nature a break so the animals could repopulate, we could start 
stop driving different species extinct and the oceans could repopulate with fish and the forest could grow back and I think we all could have a better life if we choose to do this. The other path we could go down is that we blow each other up with war or create deadly viruses we can't solve like in The Handmaid's Tale or other, you know, humans. If we create something we can't undo, we might go down the tubes and, and with carbon in the atmosphere and global melting of the ice caps and stuff, which is maybe unstoppable at this point, I think we're at a real crossroads. And, I, you know, I'm an old guy. I may not live to see a whole lot more of the changes that are undoubtedly going to happen, but I would sure like to. But I would love, I'd like to, I'd try to be an optimist. I'd like to hope that through education and science and clear thinking and good communication, we come to some sort of a, a passive understanding of the stuff we need to do rather than having any conspiracy organizations shove it down everybody's throats. I think we need to just come to a general knowledge that it's not a good idea to have too many of us mm. and that uh, we could live lives of creativity and have better lives rather than just more and more and more. Do you think that maybe that kind of, like you said, the, the agrarian life incentivizes a large family. And well, right, because you're only, and, and if you're in a warlord society where there's no, you know, the conservatives will say, well, government shouldn't take care of you. You should, you should in America in particular, the rugged individualism. You, know, you can do it on your own, and if you don't do it on your own, you're just a lazy ass. That's kind of, you know, how a lot of our uh, Republican friends and quote-unquote conservative thought follows those lines a lot. Uh, you know, get rid of all social help or anything. Well, it, it doesn't really work that way. Humans have always needed each other, and we've always, even in agrarian societies or caveman society, small tribal units, the tribe took care of its members. But, well, like, within the last few years, for the first time ever, we were able to create with uh, laboratory fertilization methods the three-parent baby, you know, right, where it's right, like the, right, right. the egg and then the mitochondria and the sperm are all coming from different places. So that's, uh, that's a big deal because that means that, for, you know, that we might be on the, the verge, especially with like the new gene editing technologies. We could have like three parent, four parent families where it's like a dozen people are all going in on one kid. Right, or by genetic modification we could create the uh, Ubermensch or something. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure people are going to play with that, but like just the notion that like, you know, maybe what's missing, maybe the reason we feel like we need to have, you know, like this, it's the nuclear family is a huge piece of this and like this, maybe if the culture shifted so that we felt like we were more, we were living more communally with one another and we were more uh, open emotionally with people and more, uh, you know, just this notion of like the tribal identity that's starting to reassert itself through, you know, electronic right, right. culture and all this well, stuff. Well, if we live in a world where people take care of each other and care rather than then it's, it's different. You then know? The, the village raises a kid, but it's like it's not just the village raising the kid of these two people. It's like it's like everybody goes uh, in on like you know the futures market <laughs> is like we're all going to contribute DNA to so and so, and then you know that's our kid, you know, <laughs> and we're all super busy, so it's good that we have I to you know, timeshare a kid. All that's all that's quite interesting, but <laughs> you know 
we don't really need to do that. Sperm meets egg is good enough. But yeah, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> but on the other hand, the scientific <laughs> desire to create, you know, bigger and better, new, improved versions of us, mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to go away. Mm -hmm. And there might be a transition stage where the, that, that being actually gets created, and then all of us obsolete models have to worry about being pushed off into the evolutionary backwater. Oh no, and, they'll take good care of us. They'll take good care of us as we, you know, age out. I'm sure. I hope so, because the conservative model is to let them die, yeah. <laughs> take away their health care, and just let them rot. You know, yeah. they're not—they're not busy working. They're just welfare bums. We can do better than that. Come on, folks. We, we certainly can. And and I, the world does have a lot of resources. And I think if the humans manage to manage ourselves, we'll be able to uh, accomplish managing nature in a sense that that nature can still be nature and humans can still be humans. And, Maybe we'll have a few friendly robots helping out as well. That's that's a that's a good place to tie a bow on it. Thanks a lot, yeah. Mark. For uh, my, my pleasure. Where do you want people to go visit you and experience your work? You can find me on Facebook under Mark Henson or Mark Henson Art, and MarkHenson.com is my website name. So if you go or, or MarkHensonArt.com, excuse me, MarkHensonArt.com is my website where I have a pretty extensive selection of my work on display as well as um, you know information and discussion and all kinds of good stuff. So please come check it out. Awesome. Thanks for being on the show. All right. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the Mind Pod Network, an amazing collection of podcasts along with Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity Podcast, It's All Happening, The Astral Hustle. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support the show, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks again. Until next week.